0: We're in the midst of a pandemic, trapped by our racism. What will change look like when it comes? How does change happen? Who and what will determine our path forward? I'm researching online. An inspired video catches my eye. It's rich with activity and energy of scientific research. A woman narrates, she's a scientist. And so, she says, we need to understand the basics. And that's what really gives rise to the ability to rationally engineer, to determine our own destiny. Determine our destiny? And not one black person pictured, not one indigenous Asian Latino? Really? Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, hashtag science matters. Mindsets, too. First, the news.
1: Trying to make it real compared to what.
0: So here we are in the midst of a pandemic and I'm on my computer doing random searches. The thought comes to me hashtag science matters. Look that up. I do, and I find this wonderfully produced impressive video, a woman's voice videos depicting the activity of scientific research. Her quote, and so we need to understand the basics and that's what really gives rise to the ability to rationally engineer to determine our destiny, end quote. Wonderful. I decide to transcribe it so that I can properly quote it. And as I scroll back, I notice again and again not one black face, not one indigenous face, not one Latino looking face. And I think, is this really how we are to rationally engineer and determine our future? With me on the show today are M. Gavi Brathwaite, Bioinformatics Program Director at the NYU Tandem School of Engineering. Dr. And Dr. Irma McLaurin, biocultural anthropologist, former president of Shaw University, and a former VP of the University of Minnesota, right there at the epicenter of the George Floyd murder and national uprising. More on that later in the show. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me on the Janice Adams Show today. And Gabi, let me start with you. What is bioinformatics and why do you do it?
1: Well, bioinformatics, uh, well, first, why I do it, I'll say first, why I got in science. And Garvey is an of Marcus Garvey. Uh, I come from Garveyites. Uh, my father was a Garveyite. Um, and Garvey said, you know, we need to produce a race of scientists and economists. And I've always dug science. And I saw something that I saw exciting, something in my parents' library. And it was about genetic engineering, but it was against genetic engineering. But I said, you know, this is something I want to check out. Uh, I thought it was, you know, it was where things were going. And so I developed my skills as a molecular biology um, in the lab. And then I got involved in what's called gene sequencing. And this is around the time of the Human Genome Project. And that, led me to developing skills. I needed skills in computer science, and then I needed skills in further quantitative skills and probability theory and statistics. And so when you bring all of that together, that's bioinformatics, uh, you know, how we extract this information from the cell, from cells, and um, we're able to apply it to various things in our living environment.
0: And, and- Irma, as a biocultural anthropologist I'm going to ask you the same question but before you got into the amazing career that you've had in leadership and you know and academic um, administration, why did you as a graduate student decide on biocultural anthropology?
2: First of all I am a late life anthropologist. I call myself a born-again anthropologist my first degree is cre- is a masters of fine arts in creative writing and poetry so i was a poet first okay. and part of it is that i always had i always interrogated the relationship between the artist and society and i was trained in a program that was text oriented meaning that you focused on the 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 text that the artist uh, pro- wrote but you didn't look at the context in which they wrote it and somehow that was not speaking to the way in which I was writing poetry. I was trained by Sonia Sanchez at Amherst College. I took courses from her. I was at UMass Amherst. I was the first research assistant for Chinua Achebe when he founded his Okiki magazine. So I was always surrounded by people who were telling me, you know, and demonstrating that context is as important as the work that we produce as cultural workers as artists. That was at 21 fast forward to 37 and at 37 i decided to go back to school and part of that came out of research that i began on my own independently and that was looking at the life history of a black woman journalist Leonida mclean who worked at the chicago tribune and at the time she committed suicide in 1984 she was the first black and the second woman ever to sit on the Tribune's editorial board in 187 years. So in interrogating her life and looking at this life history methodology, it just so happens that anthropology was beginning to uh, surround itself with questions about ethnography as genre. It was looking at, looking at different methodologies in which to capture ethnographic or anthropological uh, data and some of those methods included life history. Some of those methods included dialogical processes where you would have the anthropologist speak and then the person who they were researching speak and you would get this dialogue. And so I happened upon the discipline at a particular moment. But more importantly, the reason I got into it is that the people who were teaching at UMass Amherst, anthropologists like Dr. Geneta Cole, uh, the late Sylvia Foreman, Robert Painter, who had excavated Du Bois' home site for over 30 years. These were people in which the politics that they had and the research that they were doing as anthropologists did not seem to be in conflict with each other. And then I discovered, of all things, that this was a department in which the people who were cultural anthropologists were actively working with people who were biological anthropologists and they were engaged in the work of debunking this concept of race as a biological reality. And so I began to see myself in the context of what was emerging biocultural anthropologists, which is someone who looks at the impact of biology on culture and the impact of culture on biology. And that has to do with how scientists interpret what they find. Not so much what they're finding, but the interpretation of that. And so I am myself very deeply rooted in the study of social inequality. I'm interested in how it gets constructed, how it gets navigated, how it gets resisted, and the way in which it so influences the the kinds of research questions we ask in science, as well as the kind of interpretations and analysis you know, that we derive from that. And so I'm also a translational scientist in that I take some of the data that Kwame does, you know, and I actually translate that and interpret it in a way that actually is more accessible to everyday people. So I do a lot of translational writing around science.
0: Mm. And Gavi, listening to Irma and her talking about the interpretation, the data, that is collected, how do you find that extension, I'll use that term for now, impacting your work?
1: As a Sister Irma, was we just talking about, you know, when we looked at the construct of race, early on, uh, during looking at the Human Genome Project, we realized that when you think about diversity, there's basically, there's less difference between us than within our groups. Across groups, which you would say race, there's probably a little bit more in common than there is within all right when you look at the differences um genetically and so that that kind of is incongruous and then what is this construct of race and then culturally you just think about the things as far as you know when you talk about evolution um you know why you know why we have certain particular features considering where we come from compared to other parts of the world to other folks so you know they basically in short that you know phenotype far as you know color is is not as important genetically as a lot of people would think.
2: Irma? I was just gonna jump in because I think Mgavi is saying something really important. The human species, which includes everybody in the spectrum of color of what we mm-hmm. call so called races, share ninety seven percent genotype. That is we have ninety seven percent of in common. And what we tend to focus on is the 3% variation, which may be some of it is determined by geography, that as people moved out of Africa and they moved further north, their skin color became lighter, their hair texture changed. We know that, that environmental conditions can lead to certain kinds of changes in even people's phenotype. This was one of the ways in which Boaz used anthropology
0: Franz Boas, just give a quick description of, of Franz Boas
2: considered the father of American anthropology because he was the one who introduced the four fields. And this was in relation to Native Americans at Columbia, the study of Native Americans. They wanted to look at these, quote, unquote, disappearing populations, of course, because of white expansionism and genocide. And so they looked at them culturally, archaeologically, physically, and linguistically. And so that four-field approach is actually unique to American anthropology. It is not what the way in which they constructed anthropology in Europe, okay? And so the point I wanted to make is that one of the reasons we talk about, I talk about myself as a biocultural anthropologist, is that I was studying around people like the late Georgia Ameligus, who was very clear to demonstrate that some of the things that people took as as evidence of race, which, are, which is sort of the external appearance, what we call our phenotype, does not necessarily tell you what the genotype is. So if you take a child who has a white parent and a black parent, that 50-50 ratio is not going to tell you what that child is going to look like. That child may come out looking like what we associate with being phenotypically black, or it could associate with looking like what we associate with being phenotypically white. But they sh- they carry fifty percent of each parent's DNA.
0: Let's stop there for a moment. Phenotype, genotype. Could you define them, please?
1: Phenotype is our outward appearance, and genotype is our genome inside ourselves, our DNA. So those are the two different things, and so they do have a relationship because you can look at a phenotype, and you can determine, you can tell if somebody has a genetic, a particular type of genetic disease or an issue example um marfan syndrome people are very long lanky long heads faces and we know that the feet ph- that's, so that's the phenotype and the genotype is they historically would die young from what people thought were were heart attacks but it was an issue with the connective tissue where they would there was actually they would die of aortic aneurysm aorta's bursting so that's an example of you can look at the phenotype that would look
2: like- But I think it's important, Gavi, to get mm. for people not to confuse that there is no gene for race. There are some mm. aspects Sex, of, right. of genotype that are reflected in Different phenotypes, phenotypes right. but there is no gene for race. And so no. what people are looking at in the terms of the external appearance is really sort of how populations have evolved over time mm-hmm. in adapting to particular environmental conditions
1: and that's so, epigenetics right there the example of epigenetics so that's where we right. you know, where our environment affects the, the interact that affects how our genes behave and our genes right. respond to our environment um yeah so that's you know so when we look at how the how how people have different you know as far as the races, basically on the regions and areas that we come from and the climate you know the climate and the temperament of the zone, um that's reflective over how we that outsources cause us to you know to adapt, and, and this falls in lines with race with race, all right. That, or the
2: idea of race. Oh, so the <laughs> idea of race.
1: The idea of race. Okay, <laughs> the idea of race. That we know that there are 108 genes that play a role in eye color. And people say, ask me, well, they will, will you be able to, you know, design people with eye color? I so said, we don't have the computing power to even think about that. You know, we have maybe one gene that plays a role in something. And in other cases, we have multiple genes. And, you know, when we look at African-Americans, we, we look at our community here, like we talk about COVID-19. We have the issue of, you know, the comorbidities of hypertension, diabetes, um, and obesity. All right. and then And then you have the asthma. We have to say some of us do. No, some of us do, right. There's a cohort within our community. All right. And, but when we look at the asthma, asthma is a reflection of the epigenetic situation. That is also part of environmental racism. All right. And so that environmental racism, you know, the amount of asthma, if we look at in, you know, if we look in public housing, the numbers are high. All right, and you can attest that to, I grew up near public housing. I grew up in an area where all around me there was dense public housing, and I've watched over the years all these people had asthma. And I think about how there was neglect of not fixing the roofs <laughs> and mold <laughs> and the growth of mold. So, you know, you see some of these things that are things that are imposed on us from lack of, you know, uh, funding for things that have to do with, with our communities of being of neglect.
2: And I can give a more personal example, Janice, of the way in which environment can affect sort of our our biology and affect like the way in which we're responding to certain kinds of conditions like this COVID-19.
0: When we come back, more with our guests, Irma McLaurin and imgabi Brackett.
1: Trying to make it real compared to what Trying to make it real compared to
0: what- We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. Our theme this week, hashtag science matters, but really race. My guests, Dr. Irma McLaurin and M. Gavi Brathwaite. M. Gavi Brathwaite is in bioinformatics and Dr. McLaurin is trained as a biocultural anthropologist, and I found the confluence between the two interesting, and I'm finding out just how interesting and powerful that actually is, and the implications and impact it really may have on some of the conversations that we are having right now, particularly with our nation in crisis, both from COVID-19 and from centuries that led up to the murder of George Floyd. So welcome back to you both. Thank you for being here. Right before the break, Irma, you were about to say something.
2: I was going to give an example from my own history about the way in which environment can affect the, your health outcomes. I actually did live in the projects. I grew up in Henry Hunter Projects right next to the Chicago Bulls Stadium. And at eight years old, I contracted double pneumonia and pleurisy. And it resulted in my having to go to the hospital. But because my family was on aid to dependent children, ADC, right? Welfare, as we call it today, instead of keeping me in the hospital, Overnight, and I was running a temperature of about 103 and 104. They gave me a shot, sent me home, and every morning my mother and I had to stand outside, wait for public transportation in freezing Chicago weather, and go back to the hospital for like almost five days. Now, it's clear class kept me from being hospitalized, which would have been the right thing to do. And I can't say that because they didn't treat me, but I've had a chronic sort of upper respiratory condition, right? And I trace it back to those environmental conditions that when I did have a particular illness, the way in which I was treated was clearly different from how a white child with a temperature of over a couple of days of 103 and 104 would have been hospitalized. And then exacerbating that is putting me back into a cold environment, waiting for public transportation, which in Chicago didn't run very fast in the cold weather. You know, and all of these things sort of compound. And so when we're looking at people today, we have to look back at what is their history. And too often doctors don't ask those questions. They don't really care. They just want to treat the symptoms and get you out of there if they treat you at all. And then I want to give one second uh, example. I recently wrote an article called How Racism is Getting Away with Murder. And what it talks about is the high mortality among black women in in when they're pregnant and also when they're giving birth and then the high black child mortality. This study is based, this research is based on surveys that were done by the state of California in which they inserted a question that they've been asking for the last maybe decade does racism have anything to do with your anxiety? <laughs> then another study was done by uh, Sandy Dairty, who's a black economist, and he Oh, runs- Sandy,
1: yeah, Yes. Sandy, i have not Sandy, yes, not Sandy. yeah, good guy, okay. good guy. And yeah.
2: so he runs an institute that does research uh, on race at Duke University. Mm-hmm. Again, it came up with a similar thing, but their study concluded this, that black professional women are actually at a higher risk of maternal mortality and problems in pregnancy than poor women. And the reason for that is that black women who are upwardly mobile are actually more exposed to racism in their workplace because they're often the only one. And then because they're often living in communities where they're the the minority and not the majority. And so they're exposed. And so if you think about Serena Williams, the problem she had, now she's got more money than any of us could all want, right, and yet she experienced these problems with giving birth. Uh, If you think about other women who are high education, high professional, so even when Black women are educated, even when Black women have the resources, we still are impacted by racism in our health outcomes.
0: And Gavi? One of the
1: things that I'm working on is to personalize treatments, particularly for things that affect our community, based on gene sequence variation. Um, So take the guesswork out, you know, so whether it's hypertension, diabetes, uh, increasingly cancer, all right, because uh, the, the survival rates of cancer is increasing, but are our people receiving the cutting edge type of cancer treatment that's available? I can think of situations where my mother had an aortic aneurysm, and the first thing the physician asked me, "Well, how did you find me?" And when my mother told his, his residents what I do, they were really impressed. There was one white cat that was was obviously hostile towards me, and I saw it. But I was able to move around him. But this exists. You know, my buddy's a surgeon, Harvard undergrad, Harvard trained otolaryngologist. You know, like one case, anesthesiologist was wondering why were they wasting their time removing the tumor from. <laughs> a black patient, all right? Black patient, you know, it had, this happened to be in Baltimore. He never said that about somebody white under the knife, but he said this This uh, anesthesiologist made this comment. These biases within the healthcare system are clear across the board. There was a study, some studies that I looked at, years, going back 20 years, um, that uh, gynecologists, when they first came out with what they called uh, interventional gynecology, right? where basically women women have fibroids and they're really bad. And so before this technology, this minimally invasive technology, they would just give a hysterectomy. Yes. So so now when this came out, we noticed that there were gynecologists that would not offer this, offer the interventional interventional radiology to women when they knew it was available. So one, it was like, okay, they know they're going to get paid for hysterectomy. But then you extrapolate from there. If they're doing this across the board, then I would assume it's even higher amongst amongst Black women. You know, I'm confident to that say anything that's happening abroad across population, if it's negative, it's happening in the healthcare system. It's happening at a higher rate, you know, to, to you know amongst amongst our people.
0: Every point that both of you are making, I'm nodding my head because they've impacted me as well. I almost died in childbirth. And the reason I did wasn't because I didn't have medical care. Amazing. I did. And it was a period of time when Black doctors, this is New York City, Black mm-hmm. doctors could not get hospital privileges
1: Yeah, at is, most it, of the hospitals, hospitals. In, yeah.
0: in New York
1: City. It's just, yeah, just crazy. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, We talk about that.
0: Yeah. yeah, and people don't realize how insidious the system is that we are talking about. But it was when I got into the hospital and they realized I was giving birth to twins. Mm -hmm. It was a teaching hospital. And they began from the moment I walked in falsifying the records. Mm -hmm. And because they saw me as a great example, a a teaching specimen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. to To teach the medical students. It went on to the point where I was in labor for two and a half days. My husband, the children's father, was sitting in the waiting room every day. My stepson was sitting in the room. They were not relating to them. Finally, our twin daughters were born. There was a terrible incident in the hospital. We had to, my husband had to call in the head of the hospital. Those who don't know, yes, my husband was a prominent musician. Um, But the issue here is that when they came to apologize for this terrible incident that we had had, they put it on the basis of oh my goodness we didn't know that she was actually your wife wife yeah and my daughters were born at 148 and 149 on a tuesday afternoon i remember seeing on a clock on the wall as i was going in and out of consciousness saying 135 and i heard them say if we don't get them into the OR, now we're going to lose all three of them. And then they're racing us down the hall. Mm-hmm. So that was how willing, how far they were willing to go mm-hmm. right. to conduct this experiment mm-hmm. on a Black woman and yes. then had the audacity to apologize for it oh. on the basis that they did not know that this Black woman was a famous Black yeah. woman or yeah. married yeah. to yeah. a yeah. famous yeah. Black man. Right. So. There have been a lot of Black women who've gone through this between when I did in 1971 and when Serena Williams went through it. We know this. But the issue now that I wanted to come back to with you is what do they consider their scientific justification for being able to do this kind of uh maltreatment um near-death experience for the people that they're treating Scientific, what is the scientific <laughs> basis that they cover with there is no scientific basis but
1: out of race doctrine there's folks that feel well that we can just tolerate more pain the black folks that tolerate more pain there's nothing scientific about that that's race Okay. Um, you know that that's you know that's that's straight up that adaptable. goes back
0: to the plantation the Pl- plantation exactly that goes back that to that
1: when we go to the hospital all right one of the things a lot of times you know i tell folks you're buying when you're going, you're dealing with healthcare. care sometimes people are scared to ask physicians questions i said if you if the physician is nasty and it's not an emergency situation don't deal with them my parents had had six boys over a 20-year period the first four of us was a well-known gynecologist, OBGYN out of Harlem, Dr. Waller. The last two were by he retired. It was a female, a black female OBGYN. Some of us may not have the means, but some of us that do have the means, we need to, you know, go to our, you know, you know, find black physicians. I know several sisters of the OBGYNs. Mm-hmm. Um, another situation we have to understand again, you talked about a teaching situation. A friend of guy grew up with from the neighborhood was having some gastrointestinal problems, was really bad. So I went with him, and because he didn't have insurance, you know, he didn't have private insurance, when I sat and spoke with the physician, you know, I asked him, I said, well, what technique are you using? Are you using laparoscopy? You know, he said yes. I said, what will the resident be doing? And the re- he said he looked at it. He looked at, When I asked him what will the resident be doing, he looked at my buddy and said, you lucky you got this guy with me. He said the resident won't be doing any cutting. He'll hold the scope. Okay. That's it. So I was like, okay you know, because residents got to learn, but they're not performing it. The scope means he would just be holding a camera mm-hmm. and then the, and and the attending physician would actually be using other devices to do the cutting and sewing, you know, lapros- laparoscopy. So that's based. So, but a lot of times, a lot of us don't know these
0: questions to ask. However, the question that you've asked is the answer that that was really the case or is the answer that that put him on notice that if anything happened Exa- yeah right it, yes. it better be the case yes. i think yes, we exactly. also
2: we also have to understand what science is science is a body of knowledge it is a it is a way of understanding the world around us right but it consists of consensus so what we think we know today is different from what we will know tomorrow. So 50 years ago we thought the atom was the smallest particle. That was what (laughs) science knew and that was what that community that agreed upon as being the basic knowledge. Today we talk about nanos, Mm -hmm. okay, that are even smaller than atoms. So science one is a revisionist, you know, uh, discipline. That's number one. Two, Scientists are not immune in the same way that police are not immune from the biases with which they grow up with. Oh, yeah. So they come in with that, and it shapes the research questions they ask. Mm-hmm. It shapes who gets into clinical studies, because historically, it has not been people of color. Most research, clinical studies, have been done with white men. And that's why we have the high incidence of women dying from heart disease because Mm -hmm. all the characteristics that we're told to look out for, they pertain to white men, but women actually have a different kind of manifestation of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then also within that, we have to understand, and I wrote about this in my article, you know, Minnesota is burning is that embedded in the Declaration of Independence and actually the Dred Scott case in which the Supreme Court ruled that black people had no rights with which the white man was bound to respect. People have Mm -hmm. to understand understand that 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 ruling has never been rescinded. Mm -hmm. It's never been revised. It is embedded in the psyche of white America. And so just as it's embedded in the psyche of white policemen, that black people are inferior and they don't have to worry about respecting our rights. It is embedded in the psyche of white scientists that we are bodies, that we are property, we are things to be experimented upon, that we are not people. And that informs the way in which we're treated. And so this was the challenge that I faced when I was the associate vice president and founding executive director at the University of Minnesota of the first Urban Research and Outreach Engagement Center. What I had to overcome was the community's distrust of science. They wanted to bring in someone, scientists and people were doing research and the community finally said enough. We have been your laboratories for too long. We don't see how we benefit. You go off, you get your degree, you write your book, you get yet another grant, right? You get all (laughs) this prestige and we're left with nothing. And then we're also getting multiple requests they used to ask don't you all talk to each other at the university because we get on average 30 requests a month from people wanting to come in and do something with us and not one of those entities is offering anything in exchange so there is a tremendous distrust in this country by black people of science because it's mm-hmm. been proven that we're used as experimentation were used as objects upon which they can do their work, whatever that is. And of course, the most mm-hmm. egregious is the Tuskegee experiment on yeah. syphilis.
0: More with our guests, Dr. Irma McLaurin and M. Gabby Brathwaite. Dr. McLaurin, I'm sorry that I stepped on you at that moment, but let me just yeah, tell you that you touched on the Tuskegee experiment and your co-panelist is a graduate of Tuskegee. So when okay. we come back more with our guests after the break. I'm
1: trying to make it real compared to what? I'm trying to make it real compared to what?
0: We're back with my guests, Dr. Irma McLaurin, a biocultural anthropologist, former president of Shaw University, and Emgavi Brathwaite. Emgavi is in bioinformatics. He is at NYU School of Engineering. Emgavi, I want to just start with you for a moment. Science. It's hashtag science matters. That's the title of the show. And I gave a quote that said, and so we need to understand the basics. And that's what really gives rise to the ability to rationally engineer to determine our destiny, end quote. And Gabi, in this um, desire to rationally engineer, to determine (laughs) our own destiny, when I'm looking at a video where everyone is white, (laughs) Not one person is in any way that's identifiable Mm. a Black person, a Latino person, an Asian person. Not one Indigenous space, not identifiably. Mm. And we're talking about determining our own destiny. The first thing that comes to mind to me is we hear this word pure science, especially in view of... What Irma was mentioning right before the break, mm. um, how influenced we all are as parts of our cultures and our, and our process of acculturation. Mm-hmm. How pure is this science that we are, that is coming at us now?
1: Science right now uh, in this current era is, is uh, interdisciplinary. It's not just these silos. The physicists are here, the chemists are there, the biologists are there, the mathematicians are there. No, my discipline is a clear example of that. Um, it's, it's biology, chemistry, it's, it's and some physics, when we want to look at, uh, when we want to get three dimensional structures of proteins, mm-hmm. that's physics. <laughs> um, uh, you know, super high you know, speed supercomputers, um, artificial intelligence, you know, things like what I use, like what we call deep learning. Um, so none of the, and so we're using a lot of these different things because of the computational power in any discipline. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it just just pure um so, you know so it's interdisciplinary and that's where a lot a of, lot of
0: things are right now so but is it intercultural intercultural um is it cross the word racial we've said has it, it, no it, it, meaning no, it, but, I, but it does have a practical impact
1: and and so i give you on my program i've got you know i've graduated uh over the past several years i've graduated at least one or two black or Latino students. Out of out of out of maybe uh, at any time, our program may have like 30 students.
0: Okay, and how indicative of that is that of the um, of the numbers across the country in terms of the students who are who are in these programs?
1: I would say that 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 there's a higher re- and this gets into some tests, some uncomfortable stuff. This higher numbers of people coming from the continent that are going into these areas than there are, you know, blacks born here in America. And if, then that's also coming from the continent. You mean the
2: African
0: continent.
1: The African continent, yes. And then follow by And also from, from the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. getting ready to go there from the Caribbean, right. exactly.
2: You know, and, and there's I a reason for that. There is a reason well, for they don't, that they don't that don't is have, historical. Right. They okay? don't have
1: the the they don't have the 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 um, insecurities about their Africanness and about what they can and cannot learn.
2: But it's not just the insecurities about our identity. It is the way in which we are perceived as less than. I've had people say, because of the things I've accomplished, which have to do with having been a university president, having two terminal degrees, having acquired all of this administrative background, I must be from someplace else. So Mm -hmm. the native-born Black American is viewed historically as less than, And so everything we do is never attributed to us. If one person makes it, it's that individual. It is never the group. And there is a preference in colleges and universities for non-Native-born Black Americans. We're seeing it in the movies now where most of the stars of films being made about Native Black American history are actually non-Native Black Americans. Actors, yes actors Actors, there is there is an intentionality about that and and i wanted to sort of just respond to the question about pure science there was a concept of pure science and it was the idea that you could generate a hypothesis that your the problem or the questions that you were asked were not at all rooted in culture (laughs) that was the myth of pure science right and as was said, it, it was also these kind of siloed approaches. So biology did its thing, chemistry did its thing, physics did its thing. Increasingly, it became clear that in order to get answers to some of the questions that were being asked, you know, that people had to start integrating, that one methodology was not going to be. But there is still a fictional belief in the idea that you can objectively generate a question, a research question about science that is somehow devoid of any cultural bias. Okay, that's the myth. Right? That and is people... actually
0: the number one cultural yes. bias right.
2: that exactly. you can do that. that right, yeah. and if, 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 if the urgency of certain kinds of research questions were unbiased, we would have more research on sickle cell, which impacts more people, we found okay. it, we've,
1: we've got a cure for it. It's yeah, it's we may have,
2: but look at how much fewer people are actually impacted by certain kinds of cancer, like melanoma. And yet yeah. the amount of research dollars, First, that dollars that are spent on that melanoma, are disproportionate
0: yes. to yes. the
2: people who are adversely affected by sickle cell, which is a debilitating disease, Yes, right? And so we know that there are these biases built in. Mm. But the fiction. And the way in which even people of color are trained is to believe this scientific mythology, and that's where we have to sort of have our own experiences push back against that. But there are other people who drank the Kool Aid. Let's look at oh, Ben Carlson. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, oh, he, no, drank, no, he no. drank the Kool Aid. Okay? Yeah,
1: he, yeah. I, his, there's a disconnect. You know, I wanted right. to go back to something really early when we were talking about, uh, you know, dealing with bioethics. And yes, I was at Tuskegee actually when they got. The, when Clinton gave them that money, acknowledging the uh, Tuskegee experiments, I um I have been you know I've been in biotech since I've been about well thirty seven years since I was nineteen, and all of those years it wasn't until you know about twenty years ago that I realized that those healer cells were Henrietta Lacks, mm. that the entire biotech industry is built on healer cells on a black woman's cells that they couldn't have had she I think she had ovarian cancer, and and uh, uh, and they couldn't understand those cells kept growing and the family didn't know about it mm-hmm. but the biotech industry is built off the healer cells any tissue any cell culture and you do healer cells excuse me uh, HeLa. is short for he- Henrietta thank you but Henrietta lacks yes and so um uh, 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 and you know i i didn't I didn't know this till you know um John Hopkins actually I was working at NIH and John Hopkins actually you know actually were talking about it before the book came out um but you know, that's an example of how our bodies, if our bodies have been misappropriated without our yes. consent. Yes. All right, to benefit to, 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 to benefit to benefit of the larger society and we haven't and, 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 and have benefited the larger society and then and, and we haven't been able to, to, to partake in that. An example, and most
2: and most of the obstetrics procedures, including cesareans, mm-hmm. were actually experimented on slave women. Yeah. Without yeah. their permission. permission. And another example of medical experimentation, uh, another egregious example is most gynecological practices have been built on black women's bodies, black slave women. They, their bodies were the site of experimentation of procedures that included cesarean births without anesthesia. And most of these procedures about learning about women's anatomy were done without anesthesia. And when these, when, these experiments, these, yes. when these experiments failed, <laughs> the slave women were returned and they were actually punished for the failure of these so-called scientific experiments. So women today own much of what has been done to sort of make have people understand female bodies through gynecological services uh, practices were done on black slave women who received no attention themselves, who were who were experimented on without anesthesia, whose masters were paid for that experimentation, and they received nothing. And so there's a whole history of horrors, you know, in the book Medical Apartheid. There's a whole history of horrors that America has to account for, you know. And so one of the things that I say in one of the pieces I wrote uh, if, if I can read it, it says, and this really connects to Minneapolis, but it connects to what we're talking about. The story of Minneapolis burning is an American story of centuries of racial exclusion. It is a narrative of the persistence of racial inequality and the burden of racial trauma that black peoples carry in our bodies and the psychological and structural effect of PTRD post-traumatic racism disorder with which we must cope daily? Right
0: now, as we are taping this, and I sometimes they say, well, you know, we don't usually slate a show with a date because then it's hard to repeat it. Unfortunately, this is America where, if I repeat this show in a year, it may not be George Floyd, mm-hmm. but until we get this mess together, it will be something else and um irma you were there in Min- in minneapolis what yes. can you tell us about the climate and the culture of minneapolis where this happened
2: there are two minneapolis you know there's one white and there's one people of color and then there's a third actually which is a huge population of refugee communities because uh, minneapolis minnesota has been a refugee state exactly. so you've got all of these these cultures but the power is located in whiteness. And what I write about is that the privilege and the, the benefits of Minneapolis as a very wealthy state, it has a huge number of Fortune 500s. That's where Target started, Best Buy, Cargill. I mean, you can go on and on. So it has tremendous 3M. wealth, <laughs> right? But that wealth does not trickle down. And people have lived with those disparities since Dred Scott and before, since before Minneapolis, Minnesota was a state. And in Minneapolis itself, what I saw when I worked for the university and and was trying to put this research uh, center into the black community, one was the tremendous distrust. And that distrust was based on reality, which is that people felt they had been left out. That all of what you saw, Minneapolis a year ago, was named one of the six best state cities to live in. Number six out of 135 cities. Number six, but not if you are black or a person of color. Now in the individuals can be successful so the one can get there, but it does not translate into the group.
0: Gavi, I cannot ask you
2: to speak for every black man. No. But
0: in a way I'm going to.
1: Okay.
0: What does all of this I mean what do you need to say I'm not even gonna ask you the question what do you need to say to us at this point
1: what I'm gonna tell you right is that you know hopefully when I look at these young people to wrap it up they understand this is a time that we're gonna need we're gonna need a cadre of lawyers to overturn that Supreme Court precedent of 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 immunity for police officers yes we've got to also demand make part of our platform there's no wavering about it that the police unions those contracts have to be negotiated they have to be liable not the citizens not taxpayers not taxpayers if you're going through do the, then you're liable we want your we want your pension we don't just stop the stop this stuff you gotta hit people in their pockets stop this yeah you're allowed to they allowed to get get away with murder you fire them and then they still have their pension no that stuff has to end but as, you know those those things those things have to end. But we you know just like doing the civil rights ever instead you know we had a lot of people go you know a lot of black lawyers that were prepared. We're gonna need an army of them. And we and when we talk about talk about our healthcare stuff, we need we you know we need more black more of our young people to go into the areas that I'm going that I'm in. Why? Because if you because if you're concerned about people trying to take you out with technology, you can't sit back and not be involved in it. You have to have the same skills to combat that. Thank you. Irma McLaurin,
0: as a person, as a mother of a son, as a mother of yeah. a daughter, what do you think?
2: You know, um, I agree with, with everything that be said is that we have to, I teach leadership education and I teach Black leaders that they have to own their power. Now, what that means is that you have to recognize that you may be in enough institution, but you are not of it. One, you got to pass it along. You got to reach one and teach one so that you're not sitting up there by yourself. And that's why I coach is that everything that I've learned in working in white institutions for the majority of my life, I want to pass that knowledge on and show people how to navigate that system. So that's number one. Number two, we have to recognize that a lot of these ideas. These behaviors that we're seeing are rooted in fundamental beliefs that are in our in laws that were passed and that until those things are dismantled, nothing is going to change. I see black rage not as this eruption that just happened over George Floyd. It is a burning ember. It is always in the underbelly of Minneapolis, in the underbelly of the state, in the underbelly of the nation and there is a glow growing anti-blackness globally that we also have to contend with africans are now feeling it from the chinese as well as the
1: indians
2: (laughs) right welcome to our universe okay you know now you understand what we've been talking about because if you were having that conversation oh white man doesn't bother me because they come from an african country now they're getting their butts kicked right so i would say here is what i've written Black rage can only be cooled down with deliberate and intentional actions that dismantle police cultures, that target black and brown people, and aggressive action that allow access and benefits to trickle down so that the prevailing gaps in health, education, and employment disparities are filled. But more to your point, we also have to figure out how to build wealth, not just as individuals, but collectively, so that we can amass that power to influence what happens. There is no place for me to go back to. You know, my my people were here. I don't have any connections to any other country. So I have to make change right here in this country the best way I can.
0: Dr. Irma McLaurin, biocultural anthropologist, former president of Shaw University and former associate vice president of the University of Minnesota, right there at the epicenter of the police murder of George Floyd and the ongoing national uprising, and M. Gavi Bradley, bioinformatics program director at the NYU Tandem School of Engineering, our guests or hashtag science matters mindsets too. My thanks to them and to you for joining us today on the Janice Adams show. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams. For more about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF, Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams LLC. All rights reserved.